From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, if you live in some neighbourhoods in Surrey or you've driven through those neighbourhoods or had to go there for any particular reason, you may have noticed it can get pretty congested congested when large trucks are parked on the streets. This isn't a new problem. According to the current mayor and council, this has been an issue in the city for more than 10 years. So council is now looking at this and the idea being perhaps there could be city lands that could be leased to truck parking operators and there could be a specific area where trucks could park and that way that would alleviate some of the congestion on those residential streets. But would this actually work? Well, Harry Baines is a Surrey City Councillor and he joins us now to talk a little bit more about this. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Joe. How big of an issue is this that trucks are congesting residential streets? Well, I know that in the city of Surrey, we have five to 6,000 truckers who operate here. And right now, I'm being told by the trucking community that we're at least 2,000 truck parking spots short of what's needed. So it's a, it's a big problem. And we've heard from the mayor, we've heard from others that this is something that's not new, that it's been happening for, for several years now. Has there been anything done or, or, or has there been any work to try and find a solution to this before, do you think? Well, I know the truckers first started raising the alarm back in the mid-2000s when they began recognizing that this problem was going to get worse. And about 10 years ago, they really started demanding, saying, we need truck parking space. And, and you know, when I talk to truckers now, it's, it's almost desperation. They said, nothing's been done for us. Um, I know that in the past, there's been commissions and task forces. But from my understanding, these are the first truck parking spots actually created by the city. So I'm very excited for it. And so what will this actually look like then when it comes to truck parking? Uh, well, we're looking at we're trying to identify sites that are owned by the city. So these would be industrial lands or other lands that can be converted into industrial even on a temporary use if if needed. Um, these lots would allow for I believe it's about 21 to 25 trucks per acre. We're look we're sending out requests for proposals very shortly here, asking operators to come in and manage these sites, and and we want to get these truckers in as soon as possible. We're not talking years; we're talking months. What about security and making sure that any site like this would be secure and that the trucks wouldn't be kind of sitting there and, and potentially broken into or vandalized? Well, that's that's one of the big concerns from the trucking community. They say, look, when, when we have to park our trucks, sometimes we have to park them in rest areas because we have nowhere else to go. And, and we're, we're worried about our trucks, we're worried about our possessions, we're worried about the load that we're carrying sometimes. So, you know, the, the process itself for what these sites will look like, that's still being worked on on an urgent basis. But definitely the security of these trucks will be paramount. And when we're talking about trucks, what size trucks are we are we specifically talking about here? Uh, we're talking the large dump trucks. We're talking the long-haul truckers. We're talking both local and... Uh, sorry, your phone just cut out there a little bit. So so oh, the dump sorry. trucks, sorry, the more long-haul, the, the big trucks that people see or the, the various sizes that people see? That's right. We're looking at the semi-trucks, the big trucks, the tractor trailers. Right. So are those being parked then in places that, like you said, if truckers are, or if the option is leaving, leaving them at a rest area or, or that, or, or just trying to find parking wherever they can? That's basically what's been done so far. I know that there are a number of commercial truck sites within the city. Um, they're, they're doing great, but there's just not enough of them. Uh, because of that, truckers have to park somewhere. So I, I see trucks parked in people's driveways. I see them on agricultural land. I see them on the sides of roads, and that's a huge problem. There's safety issues. There's traffic issues. That's the problem we're trying to fix here. And is there any uh, bylaw or is there anything that would stop somebody at this point from parking, say, in a driveway or, or anywhere, I guess, that they could actually find space to put that truck? 
In the city of Surrey, you could only park trucks on industrial land or land that has been granted a temporary use permit. And that's with the approval of council. So it, would, it sounds then like there are a lot of trucks that maybe they're, they're chancing getting a ticket because they're parking there anyway? They're desperate. They have nowhere else to go. And that's, that's why we're really excited about this. Uh, the trucking community has been neglected for far too long. So we're really happy to start chiseling away at their need. Uh, are truckers getting uh, bylaw tickets or, or tickets for parking illegally? Absolutely there. Absolutely. And we have to enforce those as well because we can't allow trucks parking on residential streets where we have families and children playing. So there's, there's definitely safety concerns. But at the same time, we also understand where else are they supposed to go for far too long. They've been neglected. Right. Is it, is it a, um, an enforcement then as far as bylaw officers are out looking for these trucks? Or, or, or do you know, is it more if somebody files a complaint? So like you said, if somebody with kids or somebody in a residential street uh, and it's a safety issue uh, files a complaint, that's when the city follows up on it? Our bylaw department is always working to enforce bylaws within our city, but I believe uh, most, of these compl- most of these issues are complaints driven. So when you're looking then for city land or leasing industrial land, is there any particular part of the city where uh, you're you're thinking there is land available or or would be best suited for this? Well, we're we're assessing sites right now. And the sites that that are being looked at, I mean, we, we have to make sure that they are, one, industrial zoning or they fit into an industrial area. Uh, we also want to make sure that they're convenient for the trucking community. It makes no sense for them to be parking in the middle of a residential area when all their trucking is on certain parts of the city. So we want to make it accessible to the truckers um, so it aids in their doing their job. Would there be a cost to truckers then if this is the the city of Surrey, say, leasing the land or making these spots? Would it then be would they be a paid parking lot or a paid place for truckers to go? It, it would be a paid tr- uh, parking spot. Uh, there's there's uh, there's value to these lands. And, and if, if the truckers are going to be using them, we would need um, compensation for that. But we're working with them to look at appropriate numbers and models. Right. So it would be something then that you're working with the trucking industry. It's not like it would suddenly be a surprise that, okay, you have to park your truck here or here's an option where you can park your truck, but you have to pay this amount of money. That's right. They are paying right now as well. I mean, most of these people who are operating them on farms, they're charging them. These people that are operating um, in commercial truck facilities, they're charging them. So this is not something that's new. It's, It's generally accepted in the industry that you pay for your truck parking. Right. And I would imagine, and maybe it's too early for this, but I would imagine that if the these new lands or if new spaces were identified where there could be parking, that the the, uh, the pay would be kind of on par or be similar to what to, they're being charged in other areas? I, I can see that. I, w- I would agree with that. I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, so what stage are, are you at or is what, what stage is the city at in, in looking for this and uh, and making this happen? Well, I know the city is working hard right now to prioritize and shortlist sites and sending out the request for proposal from operators. We are trying to rush this through. We want to make sure this happens sooner rather than later. And so a matter of weeks then or months or any idea? Weeks to months, definitely not years. <laughs> and would it be for any any trucker as far as uh, does it have to be part of a company or it could be an independent trucker or, or anybody that kind of fits that description? The policies around who can park there are being worked on as we speak. Um, We want to see Surrey businesses, Surrey truckers be supported. And what kind of a response have you had from industry or from truckers? Well, 
I haven't spoken with truckers since our announcement last night, but I did speak with a, a bunch of truckers prior to the announcement, and and they said just do something. We've heard we've had lip service for years and years and years on this issue from provincial, uh, multiple governments, not any government in particular, from provincial, municipal, and nothing's ever been done for us. So commit to us and please do something. Please take steps forward to get us some truck parking. So I, I think they're going to be happy with what we're doing here. All right. Well, we will leave it there for today. But Councillor Baines, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us on this October 31st. Uh, We are taking a look now at a report. It was released by the Independent Investigations Office in this province. That is the office that investigates whenever there was an injury or death when when it involves a police officer in the province. Well, this particular case had to do with an arrest that took place in Williams Lake. And this was a person who was taken to the cells at the the RCMP detachment and in the report it says the person appeared to be eating and sleeping normally but by November 15th a couple of days later the person who had been arrested started vomiting and became lethargic after a significant period during which the jail staff observed the deterioration of the arrested person's condition he was then taken to hospital his condition deteriorated even more he was then placed in intensive care and was eventually discharged charged from hospital on November 28th, so several days later. And because this person had suffered a life-threatening health crisis while in police custody, that is why the Independent Investigations Office was notified and started an investigation. So the findings in this investigation take, well, they take a look at how people who are intoxicated are housed when they have been arrested and how that could potentially change. And joining me to take a look at this is Sarah Lehman, lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah Lehman, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I found this to be an interesting report because on the one hand, one of the conclusions is that the care of intoxicated persons shouldn't be a police responsibility because it's a health care issue. But it also finds that had the police arranged for a medical evaluation sooner, this person might have been discharged and sent home and the outcome could have been even worse. Uh, What is your take on, on kind of the findings in this report? Yeah, this is an unfortunate incident, and we're just very lucky that something worse didn't happen. So um, in some ways, the police intervention uh, was very positive here. Um, That being said, I think that it is uh, common sense that police should not be responsible for discharging any type of uh, medical service, and that includes uh, assisting people in uh, detox. Um, And I think it's very important for us to really emphasize that. Uh, Police have a particular role in our community, and that role uh, needs to be very properly defined to fit within their training skills and expertise. They should not be delivering medical services. And so uh, I think that is a very, very important and, again, common sense finding from this particular study. Should it is it those saying, do you think that people who are arrested and who are intoxicated, they shouldn't be taken to the same cells? They should be taken to a healthcare care facility instead? 
Mm -hmm. And what's very interesting uh, about the statistics around these kinds of incidents is that uh, most of the time, police are not dealing with any kind of crime or criminal allegation. Instead, they may just be dealing with a person who's in crisis, uh, who hasn't done anything wrong except for, you know, be in the street or, or be in a public place and be intoxicated and require assistance. So I think the idea of taking a person who is detoxing to jail uh, is very antiquated. It's something that uh, comes from a time when we used to consider, you know, addiction to be a crime in itself, which we know it's not. Um, So I know that there are a number of community resources that have been set up over the years to assist in these types of specific scenarios where no crime has been committed, but a person needs some intervention Uh, And again, you know, it may just be that we have some gaps in the service providing um, or that we don't have enough resources available to help everybody. So police end up coming in and uh, filling in um, those gaps, which, again, is is not appropriate in my view, uh, but it is an important discussion and one that needs to be had. Is it different, do you think, if it if it's not that somebody has been arrested or somebody's been taken into custody because they were sleeping on the street or intoxicated in public, that, that it, would it be different if they were arrested and accused of a crime but also happened to be intoxicated? Yes. And again, I think that there is a very clear distinction to be made there, but not one that necessarily says that a person shouldn't still be seen by a medical professional if there's any concern about their health or uh, them being under the influence of substances at the time of arrest, even if there is grounds to consider that a crime has been committed. So still, we need to make sure that police are not administering any type of uh, medical service beyond what they're trained to do, um, which is very limited, uh, or giving any type of medical assessment. Um, I think we have to leave that in the hands of our medical professionals. Um, And again, I think this is a huge gap in our healthcare system here in British Columbia. Um, We have an overstrained healthcare system, and it's simply inappropriate to expect that other services like police are going to fill in for that. Right. So so in a scenario like that, and again, if, if it's a scenario where police are involved because they've been called to a, a potential crime uh, in progress, if someone is intoxicated, though, they would still, I would think, arrest that person. And then if that person was taken and, and held in the cells, and especially I, I would think in smaller communities, uh, they would still be monitored, wouldn't they, by, by police? Or is that part of the issue? Yeah, so if a person is brought to cells, then they usually aren't monitored by the arresting officer or by police. It's normally the jail staff. Um, so those would be sheriffs, um, some community constables and things like that. Um, so again, it's hard to say uh, what kind of training skills and expertise various people have within the justice system when they are dealing with people who have been detained and are being held in custody. Um, every community center is going to be a little bit different in terms of their own protocols and who they have available. So it's just about making sure that those resources are in place and that they're available and able to respond when they are needed. Right, which makes a lot of sense. And I think why, why I found the, the, the part or the quote in the report, which again, this was the the finding, the medical opinion from, it's, it's only described, this person is described as an experienced emergency room physician who found that had they, they, they not 
taken this person in and into cells and been monitoring this person, or if they had discharged this person earlier, uh, things could have been worse. He could have had a, a suffered a, a bad outcome and even goes on to say either death or an oxic brain injury, that the chances of that would have increased if this person hadn't been kept in cells and, and been monitored. Mm-hmm. So it seems that here, you know, police intervention and monitoring in cells worked in this specific individual's favor, ultimately. But again, it really just raises concerns about who is monitoring people? When is it appropriate to monitor people? Um, and do we have the resources to do it safely and properly to make sure that people aren't injured while in police custody? It's a very important discussion to be had. Uh, I know that, again, there are service providers out there. For example, here in Vancouver, we have SafeRide, which coordinates between different detox facilities, police, hospitals, and so on and so forth to get people where they need to go. Um, but it is an important issue that we need to uh, have some light shed on, uh, particularly given the scrutiny that police are often under in dealing with our communities. Uh, one of the other findings as well, and this is the finding uh, of the IIO, not not the medical uh, professional, but uh, it says uh, holding intoxicated persons in police cells uh, ostensibly for their own protection, guarded by people who are not trained health professionals, is an outdated practice. It's proven not to provide adequate guarantees to their safety and health. Uh, it says there are other options, including sobering centers and having health professionals on site to assist with the care of intoxicated persons and says that this is happening in some parts of BC, uh, but is it more so, again, this this happened in Williams Lake, that it is happening maybe in the bigger centers, but other other communities and other parts of BC are, are kind of uh, slow to, to adopt those practices? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, every community is going to be a little different. And when we have more isolated or smaller communities, it might be harder for them to make appropriate arrangements. Um, I recently read a statistic that said that uh, implementing uh, extensive detox services throughout the province is going to cost somewhere around about $1 billion, which is a huge figure. Um, But it may be a necessary one in order to make sure that our communities are safe and most vulnerable people are being protected. Uh, Does a story like this as well, I mean, this is one report from the IIO, uh, does this happen a lot more, though, than we know, and that this is kind of a common occurrence? Well, I mean, I don't know if I would say it's common, but I don't think it's terribly unusual for a person who's uh, intoxicated to be taken into police custody. Um, Again, you know, the vast majority of instances where intoxicated persons come into police contact are not ones where crimes are being committed, but rather as a result of maybe a concerned citizen calling the police for assistance um, or even proactive patrols that are happening in our communities to help uh, give assistance to people who might be um, in a dangerous or vulnerable situation. Uh, But, you know, it is something that police are uh, familiar with, of course, dealing with intoxicated people, uh, but, you know, notwithstanding the fact they don't have the medical training to uh, render assistance beyond just simple first aid uh, when these kinds of situations arise.
It does also seem, and like you said, when somebody is taken to the cells, it's not the arresting officer in many cases. It would be the jail guard who is watching and not somebody who is a trained medical personnel or professional. It does also seem, doesn't it, that it's 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 subjective in that if somebody, if they see somebody, maybe they, they don't look great, maybe they even look a little worse than when they came in, they're vomiting. If somebody feels like, oh, I don't really want to deal with that, if you don't have a medical background and you don't know all of the factors, it seems like that that's putting uh, that could potentially put somebody in a pretty dangerous position. Absolutely. And I think that it's also unfair to jail staff to expect them to have medical training and expertise that is most normally reserved for doctors, nurses and other trained medical professionals. Um, It's just creating a standard that, in my view, is unreasonable. uh, And it's something that needs to be dealt with uh, in a way that's more substantive than saying, oh, well, somebody can just keep an eye on them. So I think we need a solution here. I think that there are solutions, but uh, the solutions are going to come with um, a price tag. And we as the taxpayers are uh, going to have to figure out, you know, what, what is important to invest in here. All right. Sarah Lehman, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on. We are taking a look at Shaping BC and in today's edition we're looking at the agricultural sector and how it is adapting and this comes as we also learned earlier today a new program is being well it's being expanded a little bit you could say some new and small scale farmers will be able to grow their business this is according to uh, the federal and uh, provincial governments saying that they can grow their businesses and help strengthen food security in their communities with the launch of the New Entrant Farm Business Accelerator Program. Well, joining me to talk about farming is Matt Dykeshorn, a dairy farmer in Abbotsford, who we've talked to on this program before. Matt, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Not a problem. Uh, I know when we talked to you before, it was uh, under uh, very different circumstances. There was flooding. There had been pictures of some of your cows that had taken shelter in a kitchen on the farm. So not exactly ideal circumstances. But how are things going now? Uh, they're actually going pretty well. We've uh, we've had a really good crop season and uh, just finishing up in the fields today. And uh, yeah, we, got, uh, we ended up with uh, really good crops this year. Well, that is, that is great to hear because I know when there was the flooding and uh, other concerns, that was uh, certainly one of the big questions. Um, Matt, when you hear about programs or this idea of kind, trying to encourage people, uh, smaller scale farmers to get into the business and grow their business, uh, do things like that help or is that help needed when it comes to uh, kind of getting people interested in farming and helping those that are already in it? Uh, yeah, I don't know the details on this uh, program. I haven't dove into that, but any sort of help with the uh, the capital costs up front uh, is definitely most welcome. Uh, farming is very capital intensive, and uh, and more and more so through this uh, the last couple of years of inflation. So any any help uh, farmers can get is welcome. Is that part of the challenge as well in that you're obviously providing a a service, you're providing a good as well to people and dealing with the increased costs on your end and trying to find a way of not passing those costs along in a way that people won't be able to afford it? Yeah, um, the inflation that we've dealt with over the last couple of years has has been significantly more than the average, uh, average consumer. 
Um, our, our fertilizers, their prices have doubled in a year's time. Um, our fuel has gone up probably, well, yeah, 50% plus. Um, price of hay went up probably 75% in a matter of a year. So, um, yeah, a lot of farmers, uh, dairy farmers in particular, are really feeling the pinch of inflation. 75% when you're talking about the price of hay. I, I mean, that's something I think as consumers, we don't think about those individual pieces all that much. But that's a huge increase. Is that, is that because of a lack of supply or what was that? It was kind of a perfect storm of uh, lack of supply, um, a drought, with which uh, like that heat dome, which stunted a lot of crops. Um, the flood knocked out a lot of uh, forage. And uh, like we we didn't have a first cut the year after the flood, so the the first cut in May, which usually feeds our cows for the year, uh, we, we had nothing. Hmm. So we spent the rest of the summer trying to play catch up. So it's uh, and I mean the northern BC was way down in hay production this year, so they're um, yeah they're trucking in a lot of hay. So yeah, it's it's a, a number of different factors that have uh, played into that. And when you say trucking it in, so trucking it in from other provinces or other places where I would imagine that also when you talk about the price of fuel and uh, the price of transport also adds to it. Absolutely. Yeah, most of uh, BC's, most of the hay that's coming into BC now is um, probably from Washington, some from Oregon, um, Idaho, Montana. So it's, uh, it's a long ways to go. Hmm. And when you look at farming, and I know your family is very much dedicated to uh, farming and has been doing it for, for quite some time, are you are you optimistic of the future as far as paying attention to it and, and people paying attention to it and, and recognizing how important it is? Uh, yeah, I am. Um, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of organizations and marketing boards that are, are really uh, focusing on that, on bringing our, our industries to light and uh, trying to educate the general consumers about what it takes to put food on the table. Uh, there's, uh, there's an enormous amount of uh, infrastructure and, and people behind that. And I, I know the, the cost of land, uh, I, I, even land that's in the agricultural land reserve and, and might be assessed at a lower price. I know that has been a barrier for a lot of families, whether it's farms being passed down from one generation to another with the, with the cost, the price of land going up so high. Uh, do you think that that is a, a, a problem or, or a barricade when it comes to farms being passed down and trying to keep the farms in families and keep future generations farming? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's a huge issue, um, and uh, I mean, fortunately, I've my family has been in agriculture for over 100 years in Canada. Uh, but for those that have a passion for agriculture and haven't been born into it, um, it's a it's a huge barrier. And I'm to be honest, I'm not sure what uh, what can be done about that. Um, the the agricultural land reserve in BC is is necessary to preserve agriculture. But uh, there's only so much farmland in BC, so it, it does put a lot of pressure on it. Absolutely. Uh, and Matt, you, you started off by saying that the, this was a good year. I've, I know I've heard that from others as well, whether it's BC or Alberta, that it was a good year for, for many of the crops and many of the farmers. Uh, but that, does that also kind of go to show the, the uncertainty and that you kind of are at, uh, it, it depends what's happening in the environment, uh, what's, what's happening with Mother Nature? And again, last time we talked to you, it was because there was flooding and, and you can only really control so much of it. We're uh, we're at the mercy of the weather, absolutely. 
and uh, it's it's a lot bigger than uh, than we as humans can deal with. Um, we can we can do our part to protect the environment, but at the end of the day, um, you can't you can't control the weather. Um, you have to learn to adapt to it. And adapting, then, do you have to adapt with the types of, of, of farming or the types of, of technology that, that you're using? Or how do you adapt to it when you see these things changing? Um, you, you start to pick uh, drought-resistant crops. Um, certain crops are better under heat than, uh, than others, even, even for grasses. Um, a lot of my neighbours uh, and ourselves in the last 10 years have put in irrigation systems. And we're, where we're focusing more and more on not just irrigation, but efficient irrigation and how we can get the most use of the water that we apply. Uh, we can minimize evaporation, um, all, all things like that, maximizing, uh, the, the production from cows, trying to be as efficient as we can. Um, so yeah, little things like that. And, uh, hopefully they'll all make a difference. Uh, because I would imagine, too, with a, with a, an industry where it is pretty or can be pretty emission heavy, uh, that there are uh, ways or there are initiatives underway and there are that there, there is that desire to find ways to do exactly what you were just just saying, to to make the most of the water, to maybe not use as much and find ways to do things more efficiently. Yeah, for sure. Um, we're, we're always looking for ways that we can improve. Well, Matt, I appreciate you joining us again from Abbotsford. Always good to chat with you. And thank you so much for your time today. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.